especially for those who are visiting, basically all year long, we've been working through the Gospel of John, part by part. And we are up to John chapter 16, where this morning we're going to finish verse 4 and read through verse 15 in your pew Bibles. That can be found on page 1072. Otherwise, the words are on the screen as you see behind me. Jesus is continuing his conversation with his disciples, and he says to them, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For, I do not go, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment... Because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, by way of an introduction and illustration, I spoke about the fact that having grown up in a different area, I spoke with a little bit of a different accent. And that it was very natural to take on the, the tone and, and speech patterns of people that you hang around with all of the time. And that was to illustrate the idea that hopefully when we spend time abiding in Christ, that we will take on his accent more and more. That when it comes to our spiritual talk and our spiritual walk, we will sound and look more like Christ than we do the world. In many ways, I just want to expand on that a little bit this morning as we continue in this very similar context that we've been looking in. Because the reality is, through just sheer experience, that when we're thinking about where to spend our time and how to dedicate and make choices in our lives, that oftentimes the questions we should be asking are, well, how do I truly abide in Christ? How can I spend as much time as possible with him, growing in him, nurturing him, and responding to the grace that he has given to us? That's what we should be wanting to know. But instead, again, in practice, oftentimes the questions are, well, how much can I look like the world without crossing over an important line? How many drinks can I have before 
I get drunk and it's a problem. And I'm in a dating relationship. How far can I go with my girlfriend or my boyfriend before we're married? How many times do I have to go to church? And in essence, in all of those questions that often do get asked, the reality is, is how much can I look like the world without crossing over that barrier where my Christian testimony is fully compromised? And we want to skirt that line because we do live in the world, and so our accent often sounds like the world, and, and we want to know how close can we get without compromising things. It's because we have those tendencies that those who love us often do put barriers around us. Parents will insist that their children are home at a certain curfew. They won't allow them to have a cell phone until they reach a certain age. They will set up barriers around the choices that they're able to make about who they can hang out with or why or for how long. And as much as in our teenage years we, we fight or push against those barriers, we know that the parents are making them for our benefit, to protect us from making choices that are forever going to be foolish or, or to damage our lives in a permanent way. Well, once again, we've been looking at what is called the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. All the way back from chapter 13, Jesus has been alone with his disciples, and he's been preparing them for what is about to take place and what comes next. He's done that by washing their feet and cleansing them, by dismissing Judas from his presence. He's done that by comforting them with promises and prophecies about the future. And, and last week we saw how he was preparing them to expect that there will be persecution that comes their way when they live like he lived but in order to face that and to be shored up in that persecution, he invites them to abide in him so that they can bear fruit. He has dropped a lot of very heavy information onto them in a pretty short amount of time. Information that he hadn't shared with them earlier because, as he says in the start of our text in verse 4, because he was with them and they weren't ready to receive this information yet. But in now telling him these things, Jesus says in verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Which is a statement that needs some explanation. Because when we remember back to earlier in this discourse, specifically in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter had specifically said, where are you going? And then in chapter 14, verses 5, Thomas had said something similar. He said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And so why does Jesus now say that none of them are asking where he is going? Haven't they done exactly that? And our answer to that question, or at least the best answer that it seems to come, is next in verse 4, where Jesus says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That in hearing that Jesus was leaving them, their minds were just turned to grief. And they were focused on, well, what does this mean for us? And what is going to happen next? And, why? And, and he's leaving us alone. How are we going to continue to do this? What does this mean for all of the time I've dedicated to him over these last several years? Those are the things that are spinning in their heads. But what they should be asking 
is where are you going and, and why are you going there? Is there a purpose behind your leading, leaving? And, and in many ways, that's where Jesus had been trying to get their attention. But again, in their sorrow, they hadn't yet fully asked those types of questions. And Jesus needed them to ask those questions because he needed them to hear why he was doing this. Again, as we had said earlier, Jesus isn't just going away because it's a punishment or, or because he's being subjected to other people's authority. But he was doing this because it was part of God's plan, his plan from the very beginning. He alludes to this. As we saw earlier in chapter 14, verse 28, where he says, You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I am. And that, Jesus, as we pointed out when we read that text, he's saying, if you knew where I was going, you would celebrate it. I'm going back to the Father, back to where I came from, and that is a benefit. That's an advantage to me. But now in our text, in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus expands on that. And he says that actually it's to the advantage of the disciples as well that Jesus goes away. Now I'm sure that would have been a very hard statement for them to receive. Wait a minute. You're, it, it's for our good that you're leaving? But Jesus is, again, reminding them that he's not being victimized, but that he is enacting his plan and his purpose that is to his benefit, to their benefit, and to our benefit as well. Specifically, Jesus continues to explain that the advantage that is going to come to his disciples is that when he leaves, he's going to send the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to come and be with them. And again, this is not the first time in this farewell discourse that we've heard the promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to the church. That the world would not know or accept the Holy Spirit, but that we will know him and we will be known by living, he will, him living in us and dwelling with us as the church. In chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will work to remind the disciples of the things that Jesus had taught. In chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will work with the church as they both together bring testimony about Jesus. And in this text, it is the sending of the Holy Spirit that Jesus specifically says is the advantage that will come in his departure. Which leads to the first question, I suppose. Well, if it's to an advantage for the Holy Spirit to come, well, why doesn't Jesus send the Holy Spirit now? If it was great to have Jesus there to teach and to heal and to instruct, which it was, and if it would be great for the Holy Spirit to come to guide and direct and to dwell in us, which it would be, wouldn't even be that much greater if the Holy Spirit came and Jesus was still there. And the answer to that question is developed in, in, in what's said where, where Christ is saying that he can't send them until he leaves. Again, the whole reason why Jesus was leaving was to go to the cross. That was going to be his great act of justification where our sins are finally cleansed. And until we are cleansed by the work of Christ, 
The Holy Spirit can't dwell in us. And so first, Jesus had to go, and he had to purify us through his sacrifice, and he had to win the victory over our sins so that the Spirit could be sent in order to dwell in us as humans. Well, then Jesus gets specific. And as he says he's going to send the Spirit, he explains what the Spirit will do. He does this in verses 8 through 11 when he says, And when he comes... The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is is judged. Which is wonderful to hear. And yet as several commentators point out, isn't necessarily as clear as we would like it to be in our own desires. And actually, it takes a little bit of interpretation to try to understand, well, what does Jesus mean by talking about the Spirit coming to convict the world of these things? And in looking at different resources, ultimately, I really appreciated one commentator that summarized this passage by saying that the Holy Spirit brings a three-pronged message to the world, telling the world what is wrong, what is right, and who wins. So what's wrong? It doesn't take very much looking around at our world to recognize that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. You turn on the news and every single day there's a story about how someone is oppressing somebody else, abusing another person, or or doing things in order to elevate their own glory and themselves at the expense of the harms of others. And it's not just Christians that recognize it. We see all people recognize that we don't like the world the way that it is. And the Spirit tells us the reason for that. That having rebelled against God, having rejected his word, just like Adam and Eve, the consequence of that is, is that we cause all kinds of problems for ourselves. That in saying, no, we're not going to do things the way you told us to do it, but we're going to do things our way, according to our desires and our hopes, That we have destroyed not only our relationship with God, but we have destroyed so much of his creation and so many relationships and actually just invited harm into our lives. And that's what's wrong. Ultimately, the problem is we have rejected God and his commandments and his description on how we are supposed to live and how we can live the best, most blessed lives in the world that he created as he created that. And that's what's wrong. So what's right? And the message of the Spirit is that when we see that that's wrong, there is another way. That there is a way where we can live a different kind of life. When Jesus was on this earth, he didn't just go around pointing his finger here and there and saying, well, that's wrong and you've got that completely wrong. Fix that. You're, you're in error over and over again. No. Instead, Jesus, through his teachings and more importantly through his example, demonstrated that there was a different life that could be lived. 
a life that was lived in harmony with the will of the Father, and that in surrendering to the Father, you actually found greater joy, greater blessing, greater peace in the lives that you lived. Whenever the Spirit does point out what is wrong, it's always done in a hope-filled context context that also says there is another way. That there is a hope for a new and better way of doing things in this world made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the Spirit reminds us of what Jesus said and the example he set and empowers his followers then to live righteous lives in service and obedience to God. And who wins? Well, on the surface, shortly after this, when Jesus gets arrested, when he's put on trial, and when he is beaten and abused and ultimately executed, killed on a torturous cross, on the surface, it appears that the devil and the world won, that his voice has been silenced, that he had been removed from this earth, and anyone that opposed him had finally gotten rid of the problem that was Jesus. But that isn't what happened. And on the third day, when Jesus rose victorious from the grave, he claimed victory over all of his oppressors and most specifically over the devil and his plans for how to destroy Jesus. He conquered death and he conquered the devil. And the devil, as it says in our text, is judged, meaning that he has been and it is over. The victory has been won through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those that look to Jesus in faith, that means that we have hope. We have a purpose and a meaning in this life that after the trials of this life and the struggles we face here are over, that Jesus has prepared a place for us where we will be welcomed into his glory and all of what is wrong in this world will be put behind us forever. But there's also a word of warning that goes along with that. That those who continue to surrender and serve the prince of the world, as our text says, with him they too will be judged. And as they ran from God in this life, God would say, I'll give you what you want. And he will forever dismiss himself from them, condemning them with the devil. But again, the major point in all of this is Jesus making is that when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and justice. What is right, what is wrong, what is right, and who wins. But in suggesting that as the meaning of this, and what Jesus is saying here, it, it actually adds a little bit of difficulty. And that difficulty lies in the fact that one of those earlier passages that I quoted about the promise of the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 17, Jesus specifically said that Jesus was sending the disciples this helper whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And so again, we have this struggle. Well, if the world can't see the Spirit, if it doesn't know him or recognize him, then how is the Spirit going to convict the world of these things when the world will just ignore the Spirit? And again, our answer lies right after that quote that the world will not receive him. Jesus says, you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. And that promise 
goes back to that great advantage. You see, when Jesus was on this earth, there was the wonderful advantage of having God incarnate there to teach and to explain, to answer questions and to lead in the truth. But there was also a disadvantage because in his human form, Jesus, as a human, could only be in one place at one time. He only lived in the Middle East. And when he was in Galilee, he could not have been in Jerusalem. And when he was in Jerusalem, he couldn't also be in Galilee. That there were only so many things he could do while he was in this earth. But again, in him leaving now and sending the Holy Spirit and empowering his disciples as a group and then from them to the church worldwide, now the presence of God dwelling in his believers can be all over the globe all of the time. And that answers the question, well, if the world isn't going to receive the Spirit, how are they convicted of these things? And they're convicted and seeing how blessed the followers of Jesus are as they submit themselves and live out of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So when we live in line with the Spirit and the Word of God, when we abide in Christ and speak with His accent, when the, then the world will see and recognize that, wait, there is a different way. Wait, when, when those people live that way and they make those choices, life goes better. And it draws them to recognize that they can live in service rather than in sin. That they can live a life of righteousness rather than a life of regret. That they can have a life of victory rather than a life of victimhood. And so as we abide in Christ and live for him, then the world will be convicted of the emptiness of their lives. They will see more clearly what is wrong and what could be made right in the victory that we live out of. And that's the other point made by Jesus in this text. Again, earlier, when mentioning the Spirit in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said that the Spirit would remind the disciples of the things that Jesus had said. And now in our text, Jesus says that there's a lot more that he would tell his disciples that they really need to know, but they are not ready to hear yet. And yet, the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, he would guide them in all truth. Which is to say that the things that Jesus never fully revealed, the Spirit would guide them in and direct them in. And we see this played out, and most specifically in the book of Acts. That when the Spirit comes, he gives the disciples and the apostles guidance and wisdom about where to go. About who to speak with and, and power to do miracles and to continue to build the kingdom of God and to do the work of Christ. And that promise continues to this day. The Spirit continues to be our guide, leading us in truth when we have questions about, well, how are we to live? How are do we respond to new and unique challenges that we face in our culture and in our context? And how are we to be the church now and today? And when we look to the guidance of the Spirit, we can find that direction. And so again, even in hearing the great and difficult news that Jesus is departing from his disciples. He reminds them that he's not doing this to their harm, but actually to their advantage. 
that when he goes away, he's going to send the spirit who will guide them, who will bless them, who will direct them, and who will continue to convict the world of the struggles that he had sought to convict them of. And, and that's a message that we need to hear today. I think, again, I think we would all love to be able to just sit at Jesus, to not have to listen to me Sunday after Sunday, but just a live feed into Jerusalem where Jesus was giving his, his weekly sermons and be able to ask direct questions to him. Lord, how are we supposed to respond to these things? But the reality is Jesus says, you have my spirit to guide you and direct you in those things. And when we cling to that spirit, what happens is we become more and more like Christ. Again, I'll point to the promises that were made in this baptism. When Seth and Tracy brought Cal into this baptismal font, they made the promise that with the help of the Holy Spirit, they would do all in their power to instruct that little child in the Christian faith and to lead her by her, their example to be Christ's disciple. Which is that fundamental promise that as Callan received these promises of God, that they, her parents, are going to show her what it means to live out of those promises. To live in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which necessarily means that she's going to live looking different from how the world lives and looks. And speaking with a different accent. But again... My question is for us, is that where we want to be? Again, far too often we find ourselves in the world and saying, well, how much can I be like the world? And when we live like the world, when we speak like the world, when we look no different from our neighbors or anybody else, then they see nothing of value in our testimony. I say, well... If you can call yourself a Christian but continue to do all of these things that harm your life just like it's harming mine, then why should I become a Christian? But what Christ did and his call through sending his Holy Spirit is to equip us to live a new and righteous life. To continue to submit ourselves to obedience to the Father and to be different from the world. So that when the world does look at us, they say, well, wow, when those people make those choices, they're blessed. Life goes better. They don't deal with the same struggles that we're dealing with. Tell me about where you find that hope and that comfort so that I can know it as well. And so that's our challenge. That is, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to guide us and to bless us. That we ask the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. That we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit prompts us and calls us and, and equips us to stand against temptation. That we would do exactly that as we live out of our relationship with Christ. May we look different from the world. May we speak with the accent of the Holy Spirit so that the world is convicted that the way that they are going is bankrupt. But the way of Christ is the way of life. That is where the victory lies. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, again, we sit before you as those that must confess that we have pulled and feel pulled by much of the world, that our sinful nature wants to 
to do things that harm us and harms our relationship with you. In the light of that, we thank you again for sending your word to point us in another way. For sending your son to set an example of what a righteous life looks like. And for sending your Holy Spirit to guide us and encourage us to stand firm against the temptations that come our way and to live for you. Father, forgive us for ignoring the promptings of the Holy Spirit far too often. Forgive us for instead of going all in on you and obedience to your word, we ask what, first and foremost, what can we get away with? And what can we be excused from? And I pray that through your Holy Spirit pouring out once again upon us, that you would guide us into your word of truth. And that when we hear the Spirit's promptings, we would live for you in such a way that our testimony would be seen and known and the world would wonder what we have that is different. And in wondering that, they would ask and we would be able to point them to the hope that we have found in and through the victory that you won on the cross. All of this we pray in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.